Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. I count it a privilege and a blessing to be here with you. Look forward to this uh, opportunity for some time and uh, count it a real blessing. I bring you greetings from Harmony as well. And uh, I thought I would uh, just encourage you that your brothers at Harmony... Uh, For those of you that remember us anyway, uh, your brothers, don't forget about you. You come up often in prayers and uh, you are lifted before the throne of grace often. I've been blessed with the service thus far. Um, The devotional message there, Dave. Wisdom. And it's always been striking me that the difference between a wise person and a foolish person uh, in the Bible is not a very blurry thing. In fact, it seems very obvious. And and one of the uh, uh, one of the main um, determining factors, which is what Dave was talking about, is the fool does not receive correction. And the wise man does, even though that correction at times may seem to come from, uh, would you say, an unqualified source. The wise still takes in and receives. I was also blessed with some of the sharing. And uh, Brother Eldon, you talked about uh, Psalm 23 and uh, I just thought I would expound just a little bit more on Psalm 23. You know, Psalm 23 is a metaphor. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but when you have a metaphor, a metaphor is always understood in a cultural context. Depending what culture you go to, the metaphor, you know, we speak in various metaphors. But depending what culture you're in, if you use a metaphor, some of you have seen that silly video, Language in Context, and there's some metaphors that get used there, butterflies in my stomachs, things like that. A metaphor is understood in a cultural context, and Psalm 23 is a metaphor. And as Eldon was bringing out, the Lord is my shepherd, you know, we understand to some degree the shepherd as a metaphor. Because in our culture, we don't really know what a shepherd is. So we have been forced to look into biblical culture and and Hebrew culture and see what a shepherd is. However, there's other things in Psalm 23 that are also, well, the whole thing is metaphoric. And there's other things in Psalm 23 that we don't feel so pressured that we have to look outside our culture to understand what they mean. For example, green pastures. What did David mean when he said green pastures? Well, we know what that is, right? Lebanon and Lancaster County is full of green pastures. But if you were to travel to Israel and to the Bible lands, you would find that it's a very different place than Lebanon and Lancaster County. And although there is lush green farmland, it's very well managed 
and fertile ground is needed for farming, not for grazing. So the land of the shepherd is the desert. And uh, we could go on a long time about how the shepherd provides for his sheep in the desert. But as the moist winds come off the Mediterranean Sea and touch the rocks in the evening, touch the rocks in the Judean and in the Negev deserts, it condenses. There's dew that happens on the rocks. And so there's just a little bit of moisture certain times of the year that cause the grass, small shoots of grass to push up around the rocks. The shepherds, which you can go and observe this today. I haven't been there, but I've read about it. The shepherds can take a flock of sheep and move across a whole desert hillside. To us Westerners, it would look like they're eating rocks. You don't see a whole lot of green. Sometimes a year you might see a haze of green. But the sheep move across a whole hillside on narrow pathways, steep hillsides. And they take everything on that hillside. And as far as the sheep knows, there's no grass for tomorrow, but he trusts the shepherd. Very different from our flocks of sheep around here that have everything they need for a lifetime within about an acre of ground. So may that be an encouragement to you to look to the shepherd and don't uh, worry that we cannot see the provision for what lies ahead. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather together as your people this morning. I want to thank you for our brothers and sisters here at Oasis, that you would bless them. And I pray that this morning you would help me to share your word. And Lord, that you would work through me. Father, that it would not be my words, but your spirit speaking to us all this morning. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a day and age where we are surrounded and we use lots of methods of communication. And be it phone calls, be it texting, be it email, be it many new platforms of messaging, whatever it might be, messaging, we do it all the time. And perhaps more than ever, we receive a letter or a note, even if it's just left on the kitchen table, we receive something in somebody's own handwriting. And it seems extra special. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe this side does more than this side. But something in a person's own handwriting, there's some, there's a value, okay? At least amongst those we love. There's something special about somebody's handwriting, a message in their own handwriting. And this morning my title is The Handwriting of God. And I would like to go through scripture and I would like to pull out scriptures that show us messages in God's handwriting. I don't know if you ever thought of it before, but God is a writer and he has written 
He has written messages to his people in his own handwriting. Now, we know that the entire Bible is the word of God. And as Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, and correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And this morning I'm not lifting out certain scriptures as higher than others, but I would like to see some connectivity, some continuity through the scriptures as we look at the handwriting of God. God is a writer, and he has revealed at least some, a little bit, of his writing. Now this message is multifaceted, and I would just like to point this out at the beginning so that you can get your minds stimulated and begin to um, think with me, and perhaps maybe you'll even think of things that I haven't seen, because there's so many things that come into what I have to share. Number one, this message is inspirational. If you are a born-again child of God this morning, I trust that as we look into the Scripture and we see how the Scripture fits together in so many beautiful ways that you'll find it inspiring and pleasurable to see that that uh, reality of the continuity and the, the expression of Scripture in so many ways. We'll also notice a theological element. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on some of these things, but you're going to see it if you're looking for it, and I hope you do. God revealing himself to man, showing us who he is. Tiny pieces of his awesome glory, his faithfulness, goodness, justice, mercy, Grace, love, holiness, and sovereignty. I trust that you can follow with and see these things. It's also a doctrinal message. You'll notice justification, regeneration, and sanctification. But maybe even more so, I would like you to notice The doctrines of law and grace, as it pertains very much to the verses and and what I have to share here this morning. And even though I may not draw a lot of practical application this morning, I trust that if we're seeking God this morning, it will have practical impact in our lives. Now, I have found in preaching, I'm not a very experienced preacher, but in the small amounts I have been doing, I've found that the Word of God is powerful. And so this morning, we're going to do a lot of reading Scripture. 
And I want you to be thinking about all the things that I just mentioned, because if you're not paying attention to the scriptures that I read, you may miss. You may miss the message. So I invite you to come with me as we look through scripture and discover the handwriting of God. Turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. We see the children of Israel here. They have come into the wilderness of Sinai. God calls Moses up into the mountain. And he seeks to establish a covenant with his people, the children of Israel. Let's begin reading at verse 5. Exodus 19 verse 5. Now therefore... If you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. And then towards the ending, end of this chapter 19, we see a fearful presence of God on Mount Sinai. Smoke, fire, thundering, and lightning. The glory of God descending upon the mountain. They're speaking to the children of Israel. Let's pick up reading in verse 20. I'm sorry, chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I am the Lord thy God, for I the Lord thy God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou nor thy son nor thy daughter thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, 
Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And all the people saw the thunderings and lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. God here is beginning to give his people, the children of Israel, his laws. And he starts by speaking the Ten Commandments from the mountain, from the top of the mountain. And we will continue to go through Exodus, and we're going to see more, uh, a little bit more detail that God gave to the children of Israel. And we know those, these things as the Mosaic Law, or the law that God specifically gave to the children of Israel. <clears throat> There's another kind of God's law, and that is God's general law for all mankind in all time. And as we look here in Exodus, I would like you to notice that the Ten Commandments, here they are spoken from the mountain to the whole congregation. Later, we see that they, Moses engraves them in the second tables of stone. We will see that it says the Ten Commandments. And so um, I only conclude that the first table of stone that was broken also had the Ten Commandments. So there's the Ten Commandments coming forth from God multiple times amongst Lots of detail. And I would suggest this morning that the Ten Commandments strongly reflects God's general law for all mankind. It would only make sense that God would start giving his specific laws to the children of Israel by sharing with them first his desire, his general laws for all mankind and all places. And you might say, well, what about the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Or maybe you disagree with the whole concept in general, that the Ten Commandments would be the general law of God. And I would just mention briefly that uh, keeping the Sabbath day, <clears throat> while no doubt that was part of the Old Covenant, that the principle and the general law of God of resting one of seven days out of the week continues. And it continues in the New Testament as the first day of the week. And so I would just like to lift that up this morning so that you have a little bit of where I'm coming from with the Ten Commandments, where I'm coming from. Now let's move on. Chapter 21 of Exodus. Chapter 21, actually, I'm not going to read anything here, but I'll just say that chapters 21 through 23, God gives Moses more detailed laws, laws of how they are to handle sins of murder, theft, fornication, witchcraft, idolatry, and much more. 
Laws about how to treat each other and maintain justice. And laws about the Sabbath. Moses was writing all the things that God commanded in a book. And I would like you to turn now to chapter 24. In chapter 24, verse 7, we see Moses reads from the book he is writing. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. Let's drop down to verse 12. 24 verse 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount, and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone, and a law and commandments, which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. And following that, we see that Moses is in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Chapters 25 to 31, God gives instruction for making the tabernacle. Precise instructions for the tent, each piece of furniture, and also instructions for the priest. And then at the end of chapter 31, we see something very beautiful. Chapter 31, verse 18. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. That's awesome. God handed to Moses tables of stone that were his own work. He had this creation or this uh, stone was carved out of rock just as if a man had done it. Only a man hadn't done it. God did it. And it was written on with the finger of God. You sense the awesomeness of the moment and the tremendous Impact, the handwriting, the actual handwriting of a holy God, of our almighty holy God. But in chapter 32, we see the people have already broken the covenant that they said they would keep. Moses was gone 40 days and 40 nights, and they're worshiping. The golden calf. But I would also like to point out a little bit more detail about the tables of stone in chapter 32, verses 15. Chapter 32, verse 15. And Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, On the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. But we know the story 
Moses has these tables written on by God walking down from the mountain. And when he sees the wickedness of the people, he breaks them on the rocks. And we see that later the people are punished for their wickedness and they repent and they return to God. And now I would like to jump to chapter 34. Chapter 34, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first. And I would like to just stop there and mention that that verse right there shows to me that the first table of stone was like something that man would have created. It wasn't some uh, spiritual presence or something. This was actual stone and actual handwriting of God, just as if a man had done it. Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first. And I will write upon these tables the word, words that were in the first tables which thou breakest. And be ready in the morning and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai and present thyself there to me in the top of the mount. And no man shall come up with me, up with thee, neither let any man be seen throughout all the mount Neither let the flocks nor the herds feed before that mount. And he hewed two tables of stone like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tables of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and upon, the, and upon the children's children, unto the third and to the fourth generation. Chapter 34, verse 27. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words after the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. It was the Ten Commandments written upon these tables of stone. Continuing, chapter 34, verse 29. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that his skin of it, that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the 
children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses came unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him on, in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. And when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And, went, and he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. A lot of things, a lot of things that could be pointed out. But God has written his law. And I think it's significant what the handwriting of God, what the law was written in. It was written in stone. I think that's significant of the fact that the laws of God, God's general law, I'm not talking about the Mosaic law, but God's law for mankind never changes. It's permanent. It's written in stone. They never change. I hope that we can retain some of what we read here as we will be able to make connection later. But let's find what else God has written moving through Scripture. Let's go to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand, and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing 
nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. The story continues that the queen suggested to King Belshazzar to call Daniel and that he would be able to interpret. And let's pick up reading in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, this is chapter 5, Daniel chapter 5, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. O thou king, the most high God gave Neb- the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations and languages trembled and feared before him whom he would whom he would he slew, and whom he would he kept alive, and whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and his mind hardened in pride, he was disposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointeth over it whosoever he will. And thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, And they have brought the vessels of his house before thee. And thou and thy lords, thy wives, and thy concubines have drunken wine in them. And thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, neither hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. Verse 24. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. This hand of a man sent from God. Verse 25. And this is the writing that was written. Mini, mini, tiko, eupharsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mini, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tiko, Thou art weighed in the balance and art found wanting. Pharaoh's thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. And history records that it was this very night that the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persian Empire. The handwriting of God on the wall. What I see significant here is that the handwriting on the wall 
is the writing of coming judgment. The writing on stone is the law. The writing on the wall is coming judgment. And as people, we must all acknowledge that we have profaned the perfect laws of God. And that judgment is written on the wall. I trust that many of us here have seen and acknowledged that writing on the wall in our own lives. And have come to repentance before God. And made restitution for our sins. And if you haven't, I urge you to. And if your conscience bothers you, respond to the Spirit. Because judgment is coming. The writing is on the wall. But also as born again Christians, we must still be sensitive to the writing on the wall. Sometimes we fail to allow the Spirit to change us into the image of Christ. Sometimes we find ourselves falling into sin. And we must respond, lest judgment is brought upon us. God With his own hand, it says the hand of a man, but it was sent from God. So God's hand wrote on the wall of the king's palace. And he has written on the wall to all mankind his judgment. It is declared before all men. Let us continue to find more of God's handwriting. Turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, let's start at verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, I'd just like for you to remember this verse, as we will draw a connection later. But let's move now to the next chapter, chapter 8. This is the very next day, as it is recorded here in John, after Jesus gave the message we just read. The next day, John chapter 8, verse 1 says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. 
Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Here we see Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. He is God. God in the flesh, writing with his finger in the dust of the ground. The Bible doesn't say what he wrote. And I've heard... Lots of speculation and ideas of what Jesus might have written in the ground. But I would like to suggest this morning that if it was important for the message that Jesus was trying to communicate, that we knew what the writing was, or that even the scribes and Pharisees knew what the writing was, that it would be given here. I would suggest that the message that Jesus was trying to communicate was not necessarily in what he was writing. Remember, these are scholarly Jewish men. Perhaps, perhaps, I don't know for sure, but perhaps Jesus was calling to remembrance, scriptures that they knew well. These men would have been familiar with the prophets and with the writings of Moses. Perhaps he was calling them to remember a scripture. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Now jump down to verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel... All that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forgotten the Lord, the fountain of living water. Now I'm also doing just a bit of speculation here, but I wonder, I wonder 
if Jesus was calling this verse to remembrance, those that forsake me shall be written in the earth. Jesus was writing on the ground. And as these men watched him writing in the ground, perhaps they thought, they that depart from me shall be written in the earth. And suddenly they remembered just the verses before that that we read. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And suddenly they found themselves guilty before God. And then Jesus looked at them and he said, He that is without sin, cast the first stone. And one by one, they all left. But while we're here in Jeremiah, I'll call your attention back to verse 13. The last part of the verse says, Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. You remember the message that Jesus had preached the day before the woman taken in adultery was brought to him? If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. I find it inspiring how Scripture fits together so well. Did the woman taken in adultery hear that invitation? Was she there the day before at the temple and heard Jesus give that invitation? I don't know. Perhaps she was. But whatever the case is, she felt her need and she saw herself as a sinner before God. And Jesus said to her, go and sin no more. Jesus was writing on the ground. God incarnate, writing on the ground, communicated guilt. Communicated to the Jews that they were guilty and in sin. But he also communicated mercy and grace to the woman taken in adultery that saw herself as a sinner. He said to her, go and sin no more. How can this be? How can it be? Go and sin no more. God had started another writing. God had started writing in her heart. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. God has written in stone his law. He has written of coming judgment on the wall. He has written of our guilt and his mercy and grace in the dust of the ground. 
And now God continues writing. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judea. Judah. Now, according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which by my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah was prophesying of a time to come when God would write his law in the heart of individuals. And if you are a Christian here this morning, I trust you have experienced this. The Spirit of God writing in your heart. You've been given the Spirit of God and He is to be in control of your life. When we find the Spirit of God writing in our hearts, we find ourselves aligning ourselves with the laws of God, the general laws of God for all mankind and all places. We are changed into the image of Christ. And like the woman taken adultery, Jesus says to us, go and sin no more. Let's turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we as some other others epistles of commendation to you, a letter of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious hath no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, 
much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for unto this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And I trust as we read that, that you were all sudden, you were able to remember the many verses we read in Exodus and the references, the reference to that, that Paul was making. And as it is said here, the law, the specific law to the children of Israel, the Mosaic law, has been done away. But God's general laws for all mankind remain unchanged. But if you are a Christian, the law need not condemn you because it is written in your heart. You're being changed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. The image of the one who knew no sin and was guiltless before the law. Changed from glory to glory. This is a process. It's not doesn't happen all at once. But I trust as we go throughout our Christian walk, we find this happening in our lives. We find the Spirit at work, writing in our hearts the law of God. Is the Spirit writing upon your heart? Is the Spirit of God changing you from glory to glory? Some closing thoughts. God has written his message with his own handwriting to his people. He has written his law in stone and it remains unchanged. He writes of coming judgment on the wall and it is declared before all men. He he writes our guilt and his mercy and grace in the dust of the ground. And if you consider the dust of the ground and written in the dust, we realize that it is only there for a moment. It is only a matter of time till writing in the ground will disappear. God's grace and mercy is available to us today in a moment. For a short time,
But to those that receive his mercy and grace, he gives us the Holy Spirit and writes his law upon the fleshly tables of our hearts. May God add his blessing.